1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: We are regarded as the market leader when it comes to home furnishing all over the world, although we're not like the biggest company in every every country. I think that there is a responsibility in being a market leader that should actually lead the market, not just follow it. If I look upon a lot of other companies which are market leaders they they take the followers role and, and i don't think it's good enough actually Why is that because if you have the resources to change for the better use them to change for the better but you don't it have it makes to. sense no but you don't have to but actually it makes business sense in the long run because those are the kind of companies that people will love and also you know cherish because they do a difference they don't just do stuff they
1: make a difference that's marcus engman head of design at ikea of sweden And this is episode 253 of the Osher Ginsburg Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 253 of the show with the head of design at Ikea of Sweden, Marcus Engman. More about Marcus in just a moment. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author and I'm from Australia. It's a, it's a, big country with a little population right at the bottom of the South Pacific. Uh, And that's where we are. Currently, I'm working on a TV show where I'm breaking hearts and delivering date cards. Uh, It's a show called The Bachelor. Yep, that one, like the one you've seen. Um, We're on the final stretch at the moment down in Australia, but don't fret, we are going to turn around and go back to back, I think, with The Bachelorette right afterwards. I'm not in programming, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. When I'm not working in television, I'm either with my wife and kid, I'm cooking, I'm hanging from my chin up I'm on my bicycle, or I'm busy making this podcast, which I have done each and every Monday. Uh, for the last 252 Mondays in a row with a cracking team that helps me every day. Apologies for my voice. Uh, Audrey and I went to the, the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation Spring Ball last night. It was a fantastic event. It was great to see everybody there at the beautiful Sydney Town Hall. Um, so I am. Uh, I, do, I do have the um, not quite enough foldback on stage, so I shouted a lot of voice this morning. So I, I do apologize if I'm a little husky. Um, but yeah, I hope you uh, enjoy this show today. There's plenty of other episodes. If you're brand new, you can go check out a couple of them. If you like this podcast, what is it? Well, it's a conversation and it's a conversation that you get to be a part of. And it's a conversation that is designed specifically to hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. Because sometimes this conversation is going to be with a name that you know. You'll see that name, you recognize it and you go, oh, I know that that lady. I know that man. You'll download it. i do the same. It's fine. But sometimes it's with someone you don't know. No matter who it is, I guarantee that today on this show, you will hear something that you need to hear. You'll hear something that makes you go, oh, right, yeah. I didn't think about that. Oh, that's fascinating. I needed to hear that today. You absolutely will. You'll hear something in the next hour and a bit that'll help you make today a little bit better than yesterday, even though that's my alarm going off telling me it's 7.15 and it's time to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. Alarm, I've been awake for a good 45 minutes. <laughs> Uh, But you we didn't need to know that. (laughs) So let's just check in. Uh, How are you? Are you good? Are you not good? If you're not good, has it been more than two weeks since the last time you were good? If that's the case, pop along to your doctor, have a chat. Don't waste any more of your precious days on this earth feeling awful about nothing in particular or something in particular, whatever. Just got to get along. Got to sort it out. Do the work. It's worth it. If you broke your arm, you wouldn't refuse a cast. Get along. Sort it out. Take care of it. A big thank you to everyone that showed up in Adelaide last week for the book launch at Plant 4 in Bowdoin. It was so wonderful. A superb night. I'm extra grateful for everyone who hung around forever afterwards. I think it was about two hours by the time uh, we got to chat to everybody in the room. Um, it was so great. And honestly, for everybody I spoke to afterwards, it was lovely to meet everyone. Um, for everyone I spoke to afterwards, about 95% of people, when I asked them, how are you? Are you okay? When they answered, yeah, I have my moments, I follow up of course with, are you doing the work? 19 out of 20 people said yes, because my friends, that's what we get to do. If you're new to the show, um, let me explain. Um, I've got a slightly different brain. In fact, I just wrote a book all about it, a book you can find at com. I'm one of many Australians living with a mental illness. Uh, it's been quite complicated, quite complex in the past, all the way into experiencing psychosis. So, but now I've, I've healed enough or I try to manage it enough. So it mostly it's now just annoying, ruminating anxiety. It sucks. Um, but um, I managed to manage it through lifestyle and self-care at the moment. And after the show on, at the Adelaide gig, there was a Q&A, which was great. And the common theme there was about the daily practice, the work that I do so that I get to live life as the one who's mostly in control. Not the bad brains, just me. Um, and yeah, after the show, when I was meeting people, we, we spoke mainly about doing the work because if you've got a brain that's a little bit different, If you're prone to worry, prone to depression, prone to ruminating, or you're dealing with the effects of trauma or PTSD, look, as far as I'm concerned, you and me, we've won the lottery because we get to do the work. We get to unpack what it was that makes the days tough from time to time. Then we get to get stuck into it. We get to pull it apart and then do the daily lifting to make sure that those things don't guide the rudder as we sail through life. Now, that can be a hassle sometimes. But I like to look at the work that I get to do every day as a part of managing my brain. I like to look at it as I get to pull into the fast lane because it it makes sure that I keep on point. It makes sure that I keep to my goals. It makes sure that I keep to my word and it makes sure that I keep to my purpose. I check in every day to make sure that the fear isn't running the show that I am. Or at least I do my best to make sure that's the case. Now, if you never knew to look, or if you never knew to check, you could end up miles from where you thought you'd end up, mainly because fear and old habits and old patterns have been making your decisions for you for years. But if you're doing the work, you get to check every day, sometimes a few times a day. You get to check where you're headed and see, who's got the wheel? Have I got the wheel? Or has fear got the wheel? As far as I'm concerned, that is a great gift. It's the stuff that business consultants and life coaches make squillions off of. But you and I get it for free. That's pretty great. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, it's work. Yeah, sure, it's work. The writing, the meditating, the fitness, the talk therapy, all that stuff. It's work. But it's worth it. It's worth it as far as I'm concerned for the life that I get to live in return for that. A life that, if you will, is designed Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss That's plushcare.com slash loss plushcare.com slash loss Marcus Engelman is the head of design at IKEA of Sweden. With one billion customers on this planet, I would be very surprised if you have never lived with a piece of IKEA furniture or an IKEA product in your home. Now this podcast, which I'm very excited about, this podcast was recorded as a part of a special Ikea design event in Sydney. And Ikea invited me to interview Marcus on the night and have a conversation about design. But don't worry, this is not a conversation just about furniture. Because just for a moment, just think about the importance of design and the impact that design has upon you, on you and your life. A phrase I'm hung on at the moment around my book is thoughts become things. Look around you right now, wherever you are right now, on the train, in the car, sitting, walking your kid around the block, whatever you're doing at the gym, look around you. Every single object that is non-organic or non-geological in origin was once a thought in someone's head. It was conceived in totality by someone existing only in a mesh of neurons in their brains Until it was created into being out of raw materials and now is something you can hold, you can touch, you can use. This is true for every object around you. If you're wearing clothes right now, you are wearing someone's ideas. You're wearing things that were once inside someone else's skull. That chair, that rug, your undies, every single object around you was once a thought. And thoughts, as we know, become things. This is true for positive thoughts and for negative thoughts. With enough deliberate and inspired action, they manifest into reality. And as Marcus describes, that object can be designed not only for you to use and hopefully make your life better, but perhaps designed to change the way you behave as a way of influencing you in ways that words or actions cannot Marcus is a fascinating man. We get into his story in this chat, so I won't repeat it here. However, I was absolutely thrilled to speak with him in front of a sold-out crowd of about, was about 250, 250 people at the Museum of Contemporary Art in beautiful Circular Quay in Sydney. If you have any thoughts on this one, on the live format, on anything at all, you can email me, send Osher email at gmail.com or grab me on the Facebook group osher.is slash group. Until then, here's what happened when I hit record on the soundboard and went live for the first time for a podcast at the Museum of Contemporary Art with the Head of Design at Ikea of Sweden, Marcus Engman. Well, this
3: is exciting. This is super exciting. This is great. Hey, everybody. Hi, I'm Osha Ginsberg. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Standing room only. Uh, Folks who are standing in the back, there are some... If you're standing over here, there's a bunch of spare chairs stacked over here. We'll be a while. You're going to want to sit down. <laughs> Trust me, I'm a man in my 40s. Lumber support is the most important thing ever. Whew. I'm so glad you're all here. This is super exciting for me. I, um, on Monday, I'm about to release the 250th episode of my podcast, and this is the first time I've ever done one live. So this is awesome. How many? How, just so I get a vibe of the room. How many people here are like full design nerds? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Okay. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go deep tonight. But at the same time, um, at the same time, there are thousands of people who will listen to this show that don't know anything about design. You know, they couldn't tell an Eames chair from a. Oh, damn it! I should have written that. But. Um, yeah. Anyone got Eames furniture? I've got Eames furniture. Yeah, it's the best ever. I have Ikea furniture and Eames furniture. It's the best. I didn't tell my wife how much I paid for those dining chairs, though. That's the key. Um, but I'm so excited to be here because um, when you think about design and you think about the, the democratisation and globalisation of design, like as far as a brand that is really everywhere, I mean... We've all been at an Airbnb on the other side of the world and going, oh, I've got that chair. And it's an Ikea chair, right? Yeah, it's an incredible achievement for a country to make. So it's 1986. I'm in the back seat of a yellow Mitsubishi van stuck at the Springwood exit on the Southeast East Rio in Brisbane. It's stinking hot and we are so excited because it's the opening day of Ikea in Brisbane. And we are so thrilled because it's like, this is going to be fucking good. We're going to get some new stuff. And on that day, you know, we did the thing. You were going, oh, here it is. Oh, we got to go this way now? Oh, no, no, we've got to go this way. OK, all right. How do we get out? We have to go through the market hall, even back then. Um, but we, we came home that day and we had this flat pack box. And 20 minutes later, I have a chest of drawers. I'm 12 years old. And as far as I'm concerned, I am a carpenter. <laughs> and we've all done that, haven't we? We've all done, yes, you can talk to me. We've all done that, haven't we? Yeah, we've all all done that. And then about 10 years later, I did the same thing that you did, moved in with my first girlfriend. We bought our first double bed. (laughs) Seven years later, when she moved out, going to have to buy a new bed because she's moved and taken the furniture with her. But we've all done that at different times in our life. Um, And actually, just last night, I was lying in bed with my wife And we were going through this very catalogue that's sitting, there's IKEA catalogues all over the room, by the way. Um, We were going through this very catalogue and we were doing the same thing that millions and millions of people did this week. Um, We're looking through this book going, these things would help make our house a home. And that is an incredible thing for a company to achieve. And at the very core of it, is design, is design of incredible objects, incredible products and incredible experience. And I am so, so excited that we get to talk to the man who's at the head of all this. I'm so nerdy for this. Ladies and gentlemen, here in the Museum of Contemporary Art in beautiful Sydney, right by Circular Quay, where the Manly Ferry is slipping in, as Jane Jane would say. That's a very old Australian crawl joke and no one got it. That's fine. (laughs) Would you please welcome the head of design of IKEA, Marcus Engelmann. Come on now, Marcus.
2: By far, the longest presentation I've ever had, actually. Well,
3: welcome. You're here. Have a seat. Thank you. Do we know the name of what we're sitting on? Do we know this chair? Uh,
2: Norrka or something, yeah. Uh,
3: Sounds so much better when you say it. IKEA product said in an Australian accent. Uh, yeah, it's kind it was, of hard, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I've had many a Malm in my time.
2: Malme.
3: Is that it? No, Malme. Malme. Malmö. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Hawaii, you got you got in on on Friday. How are, yeah. you, how are you going?
2: I'm coping. I'm a <laughs> little
3: bit jet lagged, but it's okay. Look, I'm 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 real I'm really grateful you are here um we'd like I'd like if it, if it's all right to we'll probably talk for about Probably about an hour or so, because I'm 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 very interested in in your story and how you came to be where you are, and also what the company is doing at the moment, because it is such a vast company that does affect millions of people every single day. Uh, I'm very interested to know about you know about how you approach a company that has such a humongous momentum as it moves, moves around the world. So we will get to that. But I, I, I do want to say, firstly, I, I'm very interested to know how you ended up this person, at the the head of design for a company that influences so many people's lives in their homes every single day. I don't know much about Sweden except from what I, I know from the, my favourite metal bands and my favourite pop bands.
2: Okay, uh, which are?
3: <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, you can't really go past Max Martin. He's as good as it gets, oh, really. He's you kind know, of good. The extraordinary mm. pop writer. This is incredible. Um, tell me about tell me about Elmholtz where
2: you grew up. This is the, the city that IKEA started in and you grew up there. You were well, it's born there. Kind of That's uh, going to be a short story because it's a very small city. Yeah? <laughs> it's like 10,000 inhabitants. Uh, it's like five roads. <laughs> it's a little bit bigger. Uh, it's influenced, I was say, a lot by IKEA from the very beginning. When I was brought up there, it was like two or three big companies. Nowadays, it's actually mostly IKEA, which is left there. Yeah, And out of those 10,000, 2,000 are working at IKEA. And or 5,000 actually if you look upon all IKEA but 2,000 with product development so when you're uh, and how, how were you at school were you a kid who was just kind of always staring out
3: the window what kind of kid were you like at school
2: I, I was a little bit bored I'm easily bored I'm still easily bored <laughs> I was easily bored in school as well so that was problematic Yeah. But, so uh, I would say that uh, I'm like I am right now so uh, it's no difference I didn't have those like gigantic really good grades or anything. I was average. Yeah? Mm. And so... I was into music. I was into styling and clothing more, actually, yeah? to be honest.
3: Is that, how, is that the doorway that, that you, you walk through to get into the kind of world of design?
2: No, I'm more or less born into this. The sad story of my life is actually that both of my parents worked for IKEA, and my, <laughs> my father had this job before me, so he was the head of design at IKEA once. <laughs> So kind of a sad story, that's yeah. not a
3: sad story, that's a di- that's a dynasty, that's a yeah. legacy.
2: yeah, it's like the kings and queens and, and yeah, head of it. designs.
3: <laughs> yeah. so growing up, uh, obviously you know you're sitting around the dinner table and your father's talking about work. when did you become aware that your dad had a different job? I was
2: mostly aware from because my my friends, they found our house really, really different because it was set up with modern furniture, and at the time most of, the people, most of my friends actually have very traditional settings in their homes. And us was com- it was like coming home to something which looked like a, a 2001 a Space Odyssey or something like that, because it was extremely modernistic. So I, I, that made me aware about design. But otherwise we have never talked about it or something like that. And then no. we always had designers living in our houses and so on.
3: Do you remember the first time you, you went to the factory?
2: Yeah, I do. Uh, my, actually, my grandpa had his own factory. So uh, that was not for furniture, but for, for pieces for, for uh, cars and so on. That yeah. so was there. So I've always been interested in that part.
3: Yeah. Tell me about what it's like the first time you went to the IKEA factory.
2: Yeah, that was actually in the 90s, I think, where, when I worked, with the, I worked with product development once before at IKEA, and then we went to factories. Uh, we, did, we had this idea, you know, we tried out to do the PS series. I don't know if you know IKEA PS, which was like the uh, forefront of design. And it was working out really well when it came to kind of PR, but we didn't sell very well. So then we rethought it and thought, uh, what would happen if we put our best design resources on actually making the cheapest stuff at IKEA? So those things that we call breathtaking items, you know, things which are incredibly cheap. Uh, And so we put, like, the very best designers of the time there on those topics, and then we went out to to some factories in uh, Eastern Europe at the time. And that was incredible, actually, because all of that was designed on the factory floor, and that made us be so more efficient, and it was really fun as well like fun nights.
3: <laughs> I guess it would do. For many people, I mean, I just asked the crowd here, a lot of people here are right into design, but there's many, many people listening uh, who don't ever think about... Objects. Design? They don't ever think about objects. No. They, you know, and, and ultimately, anything we look at that is inorganic, that is, you know is designed by a human unless it's a rock, but it's, it's designed by a human.
2: Yeah so know? far it might differ in the future.
3: True. Yeah. Mean, well we should talk about that later. Um, <laughs> but you know what are some ways that every, kind of everyday people could be like a, more aware of design in their lives?
2: I think that you shouldn't just buy stuff, you should really think of what you buy and why you buy stuff actually. That's the very so make your choices and do your research before. And for, for me, working with this or being influenced all my life, I'm, I'm super picky. So I don't buy very much because, I, again, getting easily bored as well. So, I, you know, before we have introduced anything to the market, it takes us three years to do the stuff. Then I'm bored of it when it comes out there. <laughs> so I don't want it anymore. <laughs> so that's not a good thing. But, you know, you should pick things that you could live with for a long time. You know, things that, are, you, that are, could fit into your already existing home. That I would say. And then... Things that I, I buy stuff which is connected to memories, you know, something when something happens or when I travel and stuff like that. Travels is my major inspiration, actually. Yeah, yeah.
3: When did that start?
2: When I started out traveling, I started out I, and I did my first travels on my own without parents when I was 14, really? going to London, yeah. If they knew what I did at that time, they would never let me loose.
3: How did you convince, because I've got a 14-year-old, how did you convince
2: your parents to let you go to London by yourself? I told them that I booked a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) And they were cool with it? Yeah, they were actually. And most of my friends were a little bit older also, so I guess they relied on them.
3: Oh, so you went as a group?
2: Yeah. All right. Of young men. Okay. <laughs> to okay. To London. So it's not let a me, good idea, I can tell you. Let me,
3: let me do the maths. That was 1980 <laughs> for you. So that was 34, 44, 34 years ago. Yeah. I think it's okay to tell us what happened on that trip <laughs> by now. <then>.
2: Uh, <laughs> it was a little bit of a rock and roll lifestyle.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. oh, all right, then. Well, that must have been eye-opening, being 14 years old and
2: going to London by yourself. It was. It yeah. was. I was a mod at the time, if you're interested at all. No, I'm, I'm super interested. Now, for, you know what mods are? You please. know you have mods and rockers, and I was a mod. So I was heavily into that lifestyle and all of the music around that. I was actually chatting. You know, exchanging letters. At that time, you wrote real letters, and you exchanged them with people, you know, like pen pals and stuff. And I was doing that with uh, Paul Weller, you know, Paul Weller from, Get the, out. from the jam. You yeah. were writing to Paul Weller? Because once I went to a, to a, a concert and... Then they let us into the soundcheck because we, they thought that we looked cool. And then we started out to chat about it. And then we, you know, pen paled about clothing for a while.
3: You wrote to Paul Weller about clothing.
2: Yeah, but he's like the coolest guy ever. when it ever? Comes to clothing.
3: <laughs> still. He, he still is. Yes. That's the, the guy's got to be, I don't know, he's got to be 20 years older than me. Maybe.
2: I think he's like 60 or something now, huh? Yeah. 65 maybe. And
3: yeah. goodness me it doesn't look that at all. you must have felt pretty good at high school then going yes Mr. Teacher who's telling me I should stop being so bored in
1: school I've got a letter from Paul Weller but you know bag.
2: you were taken down in L. there was not that many kids who were into, into the mod era I would say or, yeah. we, were, we were the odd ones at the time
3: right well you know it goes to show that you, you took care of how a, your visual appearance appeared yeah. and, and that was the gateway
2: yeah it was that was my first interest into design and and you know, making choices, I would say.
3: After high school, did you did you pursue uh, an academic career in that direction?
2: None whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> the only school I have is the school of life, actually, to be honest. Yeah. But I worked with creative leadership from the very beginning. So I, everything I've done is to work with other creatives. And uh, since I'm not like a designer myself, I, you know, I've been more like influencing people to where to go and how to think and doing strategies for that. So the head the of
3: design at IKEA is not a designer.
2: Not, and I think that's a good thing actually, because otherwise I will be into their job, and they're really good at what they're doing. So it's more about how could we lead ourselves into being more the visionary guy, yeah, to show off what we could be in the future.
3: So when you said you were influenced by travel, uh, how do you how do you time your trips? Do you do you time them before you get bored, or you go like nah, I'm going to be bored by, and then I'll book it
2: now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, usually I go to a place. yeah. You know, I had this this idea when I, before that we should never go back to one place, so always to a new place every time, which is a good idea actually because life is short. Uh, so that's one thing, and then I I'll, I'll try to mix it up so it's always like going. I'm interested in animals and nature, which is and I'm really interested in big cities. So I always have to go to a place where there's close. With both and actually yeah. that 's what I like, and when I travel within Ikea then it 's topics it 's not about the place it 's more like what is the topic that we want to solve while by doing this travel yeah, and then it, usually it 's so many interesting people that you meet i think that's that 's the most interesting part and
3: how do you how do you collect the ideas that 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 come to you and when do they come to you
2: uh, you know i 've never taken notes on anything because I have this idea that if you will remember the good ones. If you don't remember them, they're not good enough. <laughs> so, that's how I work.
3: I like it. I like it. So, uh, when, you, when you get home, do you just kind of walk into the office and go, right, everybody, here's what we're doing? <laughs>
2: no, I'm not that kind of guy at all. <laughs> no, no, it's more actually we sit down and we, we think, oh, okay, so what are the things that we're going to do for the, the, maybe the half a year to come or something like that? And then all of the designers at IKEA, they are extremely self-sufficient, they work by themselves, and actually we gather into different groups for different topics that we want to take on. And it's more from who's interested in this topic, and then you go on to it together.
3: As you, as you travel around the world, do you see a commonality in, in the needs for
2: what you're trying to design? I think that everybody, when you go to different, different cities or different parts of the world, everybodys they want you to say that they're so different. And the sad story is that you're not. <laughs> Most of the things are similar all over the world, actually. And, and that's a good thing for IKEA. Since we are relying on doing things in large scale to get our prices down, uh, it works quite well that there is more similarities than, than differences. What you need to be aware of is more like cultural differences and the way to, to take on the, the, uh, the problems, which could be very different.
3: Can you give me an example?
2: No, I cannot. I'm not that smart and sharp in such a short notice. Oh, well,
3: for, let, me, let me lead you into it. Maybe, for example, you know, the, uh, a market like, say, for example, an emerging market like Africa versus yeah. a, an established market like Australia. You know, what are the cultural differences that you're dealing with between... Them?
2: I would say that you know, the, uh, the uh, difference is there. Now, we have worked with, with Africa for two years, actually, together with a team. Uh, team of designers from Africa, and they relate to things far more, or they relate to their heritage far more than we do, usually. Even when they do completely new stuff, they're always relating it to to their heritage and the behaviors from the past also. Uh, That's one thing. And they're, I would say that they're more proud also than we about their heritage. And they want to show that off in the new things. That's one thing that I've seen. And there's, the other thing is there is also a closer connection between art and design in a lot of the parts of, of Africa. Yeah. So the disciplines is like dissolved. You could work with an architect or an artist, or you could work with a fashion designer, but they're just jumping into it and they, they blend well together. And that's kind of nice, actually. So it's more of, about solving it and, and being creative together.
3: You're designing, like, I mean, we're sitting here, we are sitting at a, 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 I'm sitting on stools, we're sitting at a very high kind of, almost like a nightclub table. We have these two carafes of water here, we have.
2: What's nightclub about this one? Well. Uh, (laughs) Just because it's high. This is where you usually take your drinks or something. Yeah, because you can
3: stand it and you can go, hello ladies, hello. You (laughs) You know, It's it's that kind of. That's
2: the Aussie way of life, isn't it? Uh, Maybe, I don't
3: know. I don't drink anymore, so back in the olden days that's what I did. but you know we're sitting here with these with these objects that would get, and it's always kind of fascinated me that this carafe of water I just poured, I'm thirsty, so I'm pouring a glass of water uh, off a carafe, and you know I'm repeating an action that is probably done across cultures, across languages, and in, in many different countries. Do you consider that when you're putting things together?
2: Of course, you're, you're humbled about this thing actually, that is such a large scale, and, and also from, I would say, from out of the choices we make in materials, production techniques and so on, we always all of us working with Design at IKEA and product developers, it's like a 100 teams working with it at IKEA. I think number one topics right now is, is sustainability and how to make it you know people and planet positive, because when you have one billion customers, there's kind of a big responsibility. <laughs>
3: That's a lot of people.
2: Yeah. And That's... I told them this morning also, when I had this chat with people here this morning, I told them about, you know, we, we are actually producing and selling more than 4 billion things a year. That's quite a lot. That's a lot of Alan Keys, man. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So you have to do it right from the beginning.
3: When, as a company, did you first become aware of your responsibility of, like, if we're going to be this big, if we're going to move this large, we kind of have to be careful where we step?
2: We've never thought of of ourselves as a big company because that's part of our nature also. To be able to do what we do, we always have to think in a rebellious way and to do the the very different thing from what everybody else is doing out there. So it's not in our nature to talk about ourselves in that way. I I would say that the, the... the way to work with sustainability comes from also uh, our history of being a low-price and low-cost company. Because, you know, waste and low-cost, they don't go together. So for us, you know, being non-wasteful has been, been something which we take for granted. We hate waste at IKEA, we hate air at IKEA, you know, it doesn't make sense to send air all around the world. It's a big cost, but it's not good for environment either. So I think it's been kind of natural, to be honest. When you're talking
3: about sending air around the world, you're talking about when I open my flat pack furniture and it is, it is like a Tetris board, uh, so completely put together.
2: That's a science, huh? Yeah. It is. Because if you, if you work as a designer at IKEA, you need to be really good at logistics and how we distribute things that give certain sizes. You know, just taking off maybe one or two centimeters from a, the size of a table to make that perfect fit for our distribution channels. That that means like cubic metres. At the end, hundreds or of thousands of cubic metres, just those centimetres. So it's a big thing. So you need to be interested in those really boring topics also if you work with design.
3: Uh, it's not boring at all when you think, when you put it at that scale. Like, yeah. why wastefully ship hundreds of tonnes of stuff around? The... It doesn't make sense, does no, it? No. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. You talked about uh, the team that you lead. Um, and I think one, one of the things that... Has to have made played a role in making IKEA so successful is the the design of the workflow of, of the team. Could you talk a little bit about you know what you saw when you came to the role and maybe how you changed things to make it uh, a little a little different?
2: I think that we worked fairly the same within IKEA with design and the the designers' role. Maybe what I brought to the table was. I saw that you, were, you know, what has happened from the very past when everybody was working on drawing boards and you did everything then it was visible for everybody else. You could pass by anybody's table and see what is happening here. Then suddenly everybody was working inside of computers in 3D renderings and stuff. The only one who saw what was really happening was the very guy who's doing the renderings. So there was not influencing each other. So what we did was actually breaking up that and forced everybody to work in, in prototyping far more, like in the old days. And also to, to do not an office, but actually a big studio space. It's like 4,000 square meters, completely open, where all of the projects are visible. From the very first post-it notes to actual products at the end of the day. So you could see how the range is growing year by year there, all of the news. We do 2,000 new things every year, so it's kind of... A lot of projects going on there, and the good thing with that is that everybody's like—I wouldn't say stealing each other's ideas, but getting inspired by new and good ideas from each other. So it's a far faster way of, of uh, learning, also. So.
3: When was there any, uh, w- were people worried about suddenly having their work out in the open again? Because it could obviously be very private and very, this is going to be it. I'm going to produce the glass. It's going to get me going.
2: No, but it's not in everybody's nature. And I think that you have to respect that as well. Some people like it, some people don't. Mm. The good thing about it is that you could actually be more people to talk about if this glass is really good or if it's excellent or half good. Uh, and when you have those discussions around design and around objects, you learn every time from each other, and you really have to, you know, put an effort into to also how you sell your idea, which is important because if you haven't even sold your idea to yourself before starting off doing it, it might not be that sharp. So this sharpens things up. That's good.
3: So the the the, the, the process. If you're, you're starting with post-it notes, really?
2: Yeah, usually we do. I, I personally, I hate post-it notes. Actually, there's too many of them. Uh, those. When you've been around for like a hundred workshops, you'd never want to do a workshop again. <laughs> and then you put up, oh, and there's yellow here, and there's pink, and those means that, and that means that. No, just give me the freaking idea from the beginning. <laughs>
3: So you've got so you've got designers pitching you all the time. This is it. It's the best butter knife ever.
2: Uh, aren't you pitching your ideas too? <laughs> no, I, got, I got nothing, man.
3: I got, I got nothing. I can't get anything over. No, the line. we
2: get a lot of ideas from the outside, but but when we start off, with, we usually start off from a clean sheet. But that is a little bit lying actually, because most of the time we have an idea of, of the materials or the production techniques to use. So it is, you know, if you ask an artist to paint the picture. And there's, you know, just paint a picture it's really hard. And if there is no, you know, sizing or anything. So you have to limit it down to something, you know, a problem. Because most of, of our designers and most designers I know, they really are interested in problem solving and communication at the same time. And if you gather that together, then usually it gets a, a good product. So you have a, a fair notion of, of what to start with.
3: So you're saying that you will go to your team and go, here's a problem.
2: No, actually the setup is not, when we, there's two different ways of doing product development within IKEA. One is uh, we have a hundred different teams, They're, those teams are specialized in different typologies of objects. So there's a team for like stools for instance, or for soft chairs, or for sofas. Sofas actually think have two teams, Uh, and uh, they do their briefing and their research and everything before and then come to the design team and then they start off doing the workshop together. Then we do things like you see here a lot, which is also uh, all of our collections. Uh, And the collections are meant to be uh, things that we do on top of the range uh, to show the way for the running range. So those are, you know, excursions, curious excursions into the unknown, more or less. And let's see if it sticks, see if it works. More small scale. So it's a faster way of, you know, we like to, to develop by doing stuff, not just about talking about it, but actually do the stuff.
3: Do you do things like we'll just make 100 and put them in the market hall somewhere and see if they sell?
2: Um, yeah, we have tried that as well. <laughs> not so often. Because it, it, usually the problem is if you do 100... That hundred would be extremely costly compared to do a million. So, uh, so it's uh, it's it's just the scale like, that
3: you speak of is just mind boggling, Mark.
2: It's easier and cheaper to do a million.
3: <laughs> I love it. I love I love that. I love that you th- that, that that this is where this is where you are. That you sit with your post-it notes in your workshop that you don't like, and you go, yeah, but can we make a million?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Scary.
3: Yeah. But you know, but the, when, the way I look at it is that that decision you're influenced, like say for example you're making a dining table, that's a million families hmm? that will be influenced yeah. by that. That's extraordinary.
2: Hmm. So then you have to do it right. <laughs> what does doing it right look like? Actually incorporating that family from the very beginning. So I really research their needs and see what, what they're after and why. And then try to top that off with something that they didn't think of. That's usually a good product. And if you could put that together with some kind of new production technique that makes it even better than all of the competition is doing, then that's (laughs) top-notch.
3: When you're designing a product, though, because if you... Like, OK, so you, there's, you've got a billion customers, right? Um, you're making It's easy to make a million, but once you get to 10 million to 100 million, those families that you're selling uh, to are going to be across, as we sp- spoke before, different cultural backgrounds, different ways. Are there ways to adjust the product at that scale, or do you just try and see if we can keep as many people happy as possible. No,
2: but we adjust our range a little bit from from country to country, but not from out of style, actually, but mostly from out of sizing, because you're in shist systems in in America, for instance, so our...
3: Why did they do that? Yeah. (laughs) Seriously, America, water freezes at zero, boils at 100, and a kilogram of it is a liter. It's that easy.
2: But you're still talking about the height of men in, in terms of feet, I heard. In this oh, in country Australia. as well, yeah. yeah. But other things are like in centimeters, <laughs> so you're even more messed up, Marcus. There's
3: look in in this country. I, ha- I hate to say, it, like 50 years ago, there were people in this country that were still classified as fauna. So we're we're doing our best, man. <laughs> we're doing we're, we're doing we're doing what I we can. I think you're doing great. I, I promise it. Yeah. We call that old money. Like he's 5'11 in the old money. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Yeah, we're doing what we can. Um, but yeah, so you, you're, you're working across across cultural uh, cultural boundaries. And when you're doing the research with your design teams, yeah. doing the research, I'm guessing most of your teams, design teams, are based uh, in Sweden.
2: Almost all of it is actually. We have some designers out in in Shanghai in the product development center there, and uh, some in in uh, India. So, what well. does their research look like? You know what we do research like any other company through research companies, but. The thing that we really rely on is our home visits, which is super old school, just go home to people and talk to them. <laughs> yes. And uh, I've done home visits, you know, if you could do it to the extent of of also living together with people. Uh, once, uh, I've done that actually for bathrooms, we had this idea of changing the way that we should do bathrooms, because we saw that nobody's really doing it in a good way. And to be able to see the use of a bathroom, you really need to spend a lot of time, because you know, if you're invited for a home visit, the, the typical thing is not for them to go to the loo. You know, There's a <laughs> 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 so then we actually stayed with a, with families for for a couple of days and sli- slept there and ate with them, so we could see how everything worked.
3: And it's it's taking that time and investing that time that gives you the insights as to what that. What might work?
2: I think that is. And it's also the way to get new ideas, actually. You get inspired by that because you're talking about problems. We love problems at IKEA. We see problems as business opportunities, you know. That's the, that's the way.
3: What's your, what's your most pressing problem at the moment? What are you
2: fascinated by? For me, right now, I think it's not a problem which which I'm fascinated about. We're going to talk about one problem that we haven't taken care of, and that is like esports. That was like a big revelation when you saw that billions of people are actually, you know, doing esports, and we haven't even talked about it. And we say does everybody we, know what that we is? Have, we, we have said that we should be for the many people. Hang, hang on know? a
3: sec. So, uh, esports is uh, people playing video games in a stadium with. Yeah, you can make that face but it's real. People pay money and you'll see like 20,000 people in a stadium watching some dudes do this. Some. Say Whereas there's some screen up here and there's this person sitting there and they're just assassinating warriors all over the world, playing millions of people against each other in these extraordinary chairs that look like they're in a spaceship and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, and it's extremely competitive and really, really hard and it's growing like hell is going to be bigger than soccer. Uh, so uh, uh, He's not joking, it's humongous. And we were not onto that at all. So that's a problem for us as a, as, as a company, because it also arises a lot of ergonomic things uh, that we could do better, actually, because people are sitting there up to like 16 hours a day just to train, because it's heavy duty training to do this. So there you need to redesign what would be a workspace to an eSports space instead, so that 's kind of interesting. but the other part, which is more like an opportunity that I see as well is is actually how to work with sense, music, and maybe lighting connected to each other, so how we could steer those things for the future because those are so close to to memories and you know the, the how you how 're talking about your home and what 's important in your home those those feelings instead so could we work with something? which would resemble like Spotify, but for your home. So you could change your mood of your home by connecting those three things. That would be kind of awesome. I those guess are things that we think of right now.
3: When you, when you talk about the, the scale that IKEA has, the scope to connect every object in the home to each other is, is there.
2: It is. And we are starting off connecting like light units and music. We're showing it off here. We're doing a, a collection together with Sonos. so That's going to be part of our range. You talked a little bit before about,
3: about sustainability. What excites you that you're doing at the moment in the, in the
2: space of sustainability? I think the biggest thing we do is actually the, decis- the decision we have taken to go all circular. So everything recycled or recyclable within our range, the materials that we choose, uh, by 2030. And that's kind of an aggressive goal for someone who's doing, uh, doing four billion things a year. So to be able to do that, and for me it's also—it's not just about the sustainable part of it, it's also the business part. Because for IKEA to survive, we need to go circular, we won't have the resources to actually work with, with uh, virgin materials. That's going to be too expensive if you want to be a, a low price company. So it's both business and sustainability at the same time. And I think this is also the way forward, when we could connect sustainable, sustainability to better business. When you get that, then you get things rolling within companies. Can you talk for fe- people who aren't in
3: the manufacturing
2: world, could you describe a little and just explain what the circular... Um... Uh, circularity is actually reused materials, one could say, and to work with that from the very beginning. So if you have, there is a share over here, for instance, <laughs> the one that you're gonna to put together later on. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna build that <laughs> at the moment, which I can't like, wait for. This is like the Odger share. and this was done uh, a couple of years ago. And 55% of the plastic in this is reused plastic, it comes from PET bottles and, and old furniture and so on. And if you work that way, you always have... This is when you work with plastic, if you're a nerd in plastic, you know that to get the right properties of plastic, you always have to put some virgin material inside of it. Otherwise, it cracks and so on. But to work with 55% is so much better. And our goal is then to go to 100% of recycled. Then you have to reinvent plastics. It's not just to say that we're going to do it. You have to reinvent how to do plastics for the future. So that's kind of a big thing. And that's just plastics. Then talking about other materials like wood, you know, IKEA is responsible for actually harvesting 1% of all of the the wood harvested in in all of the world is for IKEA. That's how much wood we do. And then you need to do that in a sustainable way.
3: When When you're coming up with these things, do you go, all right, that's the goal, we will figure it out? We're just going to try for it? We'll we'll just have to work on it?
2: No, we just have to succeed, you know? I think that's we would never think that we would fail. It's never happened. (laughs) (laughs) What I I
3: love is that as a frustrated member of a democracy, I can sit here and get upset at my government for making unsustainable choices, Mm. but then a company that is not democratically elected can make a decision in a boardroom that will take all those choices away from government and go, well, well screw you, we're just going to do it anyway. Yeah. And I, f- I find that fascinating and actually really exciting that a company of your size is doing that. And then economically, your competitors will be like, well, they're doing it. we're going to have to do it. Mm. And then everyone has to go with.
2: But I think that's, you know, I always say, since we are regarded as the market leader when it comes to home furnishing all over the world, all, although we're not like the biggest company in every, every country, I think that there is a responsibility in being a market leader that I should actually lead the market, not just follow it. And if I look upon a lot of other companies which are market leaders, they, they take the follower's role, and, and I don't think it's good enough, actually. Yeah? Why that? Because if you have the resources to change for the better, use them to change for the better. But you don't have. It makes sense. No, you don't have to. But actually, it makes business sense in the long run because those are the kind of companies that people will love and also, you know, cherish because they do a difference. They don't just do stuff. They make a difference.
3: But it's it's interesting, I guess, as well that the economics will ultimately make the decision. As you said, it'll become too expensive to use virgin materials, Mm -hmm. and that's that's fascinating. It
2: is, uh, and it makes total sense.
3: I wonder if we'll see it in other manufacturing like, I don't know, automotive or electronics?
2: I think you already do. Actually, if you see the change for, for uh, aluminium in cars, for instance, from out of carbon steel, it's because it's easier to, to also to, um, to have recycled aluminium. It's a good material to recycle. So that's why you see a lot of aluminium in cars. It makes sense also from out of weight. It's more sustainable. So it's actually another other manufacturing techniques that you're going to see this faster than they think.
3: When you, when you walk through the world... Have you, have you seen the film The Matrix?
2: Yeah, it was quite a while ago. <laughs> do you have that thing in the back?
3: Well, no, there's a, there's a final... And they, they shot it here, actually. There's, there's a final scene where, suddenly, Keanu just sees code everywhere. It's all... he's just sees the... When you walk around the world, do you just, do you just like sit in this room and just see objects and just go, oh, yeah, yeah, That's <laughs> <As> a
2: designer? <laughs> no, but I, I, personally, I think that... I've always been curious about how things are made. So, I I think that's one of the things that if you work with design or product development, you're the guy who's going to, you know, you're not going to just let it lie around. You're going to, you know, this, okay, so this is the way. Or turn things upside down and so on.
3: Are you that that guy when you go to a store? Do you pick things up and move them around and try and take them apart?
2: No, I try to understand how it's made. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in that. Also in restaurants, you know, if you see a beautiful chair and you say, okay, that's really a bad construction. Then you have to turn it around and say, why did they do it like that? <laughs> so you're at a big fancy work dinner and you'll pick a chair up? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that
2: could happen.
3: I love that. I love that. Just, I mean, I don't think I'm going to speak to someone in a hurry that is more busy than you are. Can you give us an idea? I mean, not everyone's going to be the head of design at Ikea, but everyone has too many emails. And I can only imagine that you have way too many emails. How do you do things like design your day
2: and manage your day? Yeah, I'm super crappy at that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would say that I go from out of inspiration. Uh, That's how bad it is. There's things that you have to do, you know, to need to go to some boring, like, board meetings and stuff. That's one part. Then, uh, I'll actually, I think that I do my job best when I feel that I'm inspired by what I do. So, I I choose by inspiration, actually. That's kind of a luxury. You're not allowed to say that, but it works.
3: Yeah. Do you try and have that for your staff as well?
2: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm... you know, I'm, I'm I let them be very free in the way that they work. Actually, they make their own choices. You're a good boss. No, I'm a, I'm a not so present boss. <laughs> Maybe that's a good boss. Okay. I would say that's a good boss for me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, what about what, what about your family? Do your family remember what you look like?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I'll travel, but we travel together as well. So not business wise, but ours. And uh, when I'm home, I'm I'm at home 100 percent actually, and then I leave my job behind.
3: And, and what are some strategies? you put your phone in a drawer? What do you do?
2: Uh, this, this thing, you know, that looks like a small moon. That's a good one.
3: Oh, the do not disturb mode? Yeah. You put that on?
2: Yeah, happens.
3: Yeah? And so, but when you're at home, you're, you're there with your kids and your family and that's it? Yeah,
2: that's pretty much so.
3: Did, was, that a, was that a pain to get to that point? Because I know I'm I, I still trying to find that point.
2: No, but I still work far too much, uh, to be honest. So that's, that's always a pain. I, I, you know Lately, I've been going back and forth. Also, I travel by car to, to Elmalt when I'm not traveling you know, here to Australia or somewhere else. And that's a trip for one hour and 15 minutes. Each and way? Each way. Every so day. I'm two and a half hour in the car every day on top of the work hours. And when you do that you have a tendency actually to leave a little bit earlier because you know that you have, so you have to have a, a, a more like a decent agenda that works with that. And then I, I have the luxury of having a, a person who works really close to me who takes care of my agenda as well. So. And she's, she's, she's like a, a second wife or something. You know? <laughs> she, she actually is telling me, you know, don't do that, Marcus. You know don't promise him that. And, uh, don't, don't, you're not going to make it and so on. So she's really good for me.
3: You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm very, very lucky in my life to have the same sort of thing. Mm. Uh, her name is Rachel and she's here tonight. And um, without her, I don't know if I'd see my wife and kids.
2: No, I no. It's a shout out to Maria. Yeah.
3: Awesome. <laughs> I really like her. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm really lucky. You mentioned before, and, and the two things I find fascinating about you is that the, 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 the head of design of IKEA, you said earlier on that you, you tend not to buy too many objects. Is your house fairly sparse?
2: Uh, no, it's not <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit like my my you know working table It's a kind of a mess uh, when I search for papers and so on, and then I have like the carbon fourteen method so if it's one month, it's like twenty centimeters down <laughs> uh, <laughs> and i I think that both me and my wife and my kids as well are quite bohemian so it's it's a little bit messy and it's a lot of you know stuff that you've gathered around the years, and I really don't like to throw away things. Yeah? I said, well, no, I don't like that. They're, you know, because you could always put them into use in my mind. I could always put it into use somewhere along the line, you know, if we're doing like a, uh, scuba diving or something, and then you haven't done that for five years. But still, oh, I think I'm going to do it this summer. So uh, <laughs> let's keep it. No.
3: So you don't have like a... Because uh, there's a, obviously we've all heard there's a big movement towards like minimalism and only owning 140 objects and this sort of stuff that doesn't resonate with you?
2: No, I don't think that you should restrict yourself at all, actually. It seems like a boring life.
3: <laughs> Long, slow sip of Coca-Cola. <laughs> Steely blue-eyed gaze across to the host. But you said that travel is very important for you and and your family. Why?
2: I think actually instead of, you know, buying stuff to each other and so on, those things you have a tendency to forget when you get older. As a gift. Uh, As a gift or something like that. I think the greatest gift you could give to your family is actually to to spend these times together and to, to experience things together. And I remember that because I travelled with my father and mother when, when I was young. and I, The things I remember from my childhood is closely connected to those travels, like first time in Italy, crazy things happen on this hotel bagatelle or whatever. You know, Those things are the things that you remember from your childhood. And, and we have actually invested a lot of both time and money in, in travelling a lot with our kids all around the world. And it gives you also an understanding about differences. And uh, both why differences are important and why why they are there as well. So have a better understanding for the world. And I think that's a good thing to give to your kids.
3: You mentioned you have a a billion customers around the world. And it feels so special to be a part of a community of people that have all done the same thing, have all gone to the IKEA store and have all, you know, picked out a thing, taken a photo of the thing with my phone, gone through the the warehouse in the back and, oh there it is up there yeah. you get the guy you put it on the big trolley and then you go through the thing and then and then you get it home mm. and that's when you pretend to be a carpenter <laughs> 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 can we talk a little bit a bit about the Ikea effect the idea that I built this and now it's mine
2: I think that's actually one of the things that people, why people cherish their Ikea stuff is because they they truly believe that they've made them themselves <laughs> 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 I've done so many you know you know interviews and especially those video interviews with people i have one which i remember from out of of uh, it was new york this was like a lot of years ago she was living in a really small apartment and she was so excited about it i've been to ikea you know uh, and uh, i got this home and showed me you know what i made this table and it was actually the lac table which is a classic <laughs> uh, and the only thing you have to do is like screw down four legs in four (laughs) holes and it was she made that table and she was like this is like the masterpiece yeah but it is it's it's an emotional attachment i think that's one thing that we didn't think of we were thinking of it as swedes as we are like a practical thing to make things flat pack as an idea, because then you don't send air around the world, but actually what happened from out of that, that it's, it's made a, a, an emotional connection when you put things together, and then it's, it's, suddenly it's your design, it's not just somebody else's.
3: Well, I'd like to get emotionally connected, because we've got two chairs here, and I insisted they bring them in the boxes, because you really only get one chance in life to build Ikea furniture with a head of design <laughs> of Ikea. <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to do it. Uh, so I'm going to move this table out of the way. So we've got, the, we'll move my nightclub table away. Um, we'll get this over here. All right. So, Mark, this is what it's supposed to look like. We're going to hopefully end up with this. And how do we how do we say this? What's this one called?
2: Uh, Odger. Odger, Odger share. It's designed by a team in Stockholm called Formas with Love, actually, and. I think that this is a pretty different way of designing a share. So th- we're going to make it hard for you because usually when you do a, a plastic share, you do it in something called monoblock technique. So it comes out as, you know, a ready share from out of the plastic tool.
3: So a, a, mono, a monoblock technique is like this, so there's an empty mold, we squirt plastic into it.
2: And it's a ready product coming Ooh. out. Yeah. okey doki then. And uh, the thing that is bad with that from an IKEA perspective is that you can see that it's quite bulky. And this, if, if you can't stack it, It takes a lot of of, uh, air, again, when you freight it in different parts of the world. And it's also hard for our customers to get home because the package is kind of big. Yeah. So the idea of this was actually to challenge that and do a share which you could put together super fast and with only plastics. Uh, And this plastic is also with 30% of wood chips inside of it. Uh, to get less of uh, oil material inside of it, also, and as I said before, 55% is, is recycled plastic. Well, by oil material? You mean petrochemical? Yeah, which all plastics are.
3: Right. So, yep. so in in creating this raw material, what are
2: you what are you essentially doing? We're blending it. Actually, we're blending uh, uh, waste wood from our other factories into the plastics, so and then was, we inject what, this that is
3: waste waste wood from yes. old here furniture. Yeah. Mixed in in a pot with 55% recycled practice, yeah. if
2: If you want to make it simple, that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah.
3: I love it. All right, this is okay. going to be fun. Okay, so this is the box it comes Sorry. in. As you can see, um, it's kind of a U-shape, and I'm guessing you've also designed this so that it can stack in the back of a truck,
2: right? Precisely. You can see that there's so, this is so much more efficient than yeah. a, a typical share that you do. Yeah. That means that we could also sell it cheaper to people because the cost of freight is a big cost actually.
3: Yeah, well as well, you know, I can get this home on a train, which is which is super good, but yeah, yeah. T- Tetris, look at that. Boom. So good. And then you've got a handy, you've got an IKEA butter knife. Is this
2: like a competition now or?
3: Uh, well no, wanna, I'm just kind of interested you wanna, thank you. you. Learn this one? No, I'm just kind of interested. So, how much how much thought and design goes into, you know, this part, the cardboard part? That's just that's extraordinary in itself, the folding. My goodness, it's like origami.
2: It is, and there is actually specific people, there is a whole team just working with packaging at IKEA, designing the packaging for, for all of our products. So in each and every product development team, there is a pack- packaging engineer. A, pack- a
3: packaging engineer? Yeah. And so tell me, if you, if, you sh- if you make 1% of the world's wood harvesting is IKEA, how much of the world's cardboard?
2: <laughs> you know almost all of the cardboard is made out of, of recycled paper from the beginning also so
3: that's fantastic yep. that's fantastic so so this part here when you're designing for a billion people let's have a look at this let's talk talking about different markets now are we any to americans in the room no how many <laughs> how many americans in the room three all right okay so you're in the minority um don't, don't go too fast here, buddy. Um,
2: oh, you're a little bit afraid, huh?
3: No, 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 I'm just, I'm just interested. Um, how do I put this delicately? Different people around the world have different bum sizes. Uh, come on, I've been to airports in America that have wheelchairs this wide. Come on, you know I'm not joking. How do you go about deciding on how wide this is going to be if you're trying to service that many different markets? I mean, if you this is look a serious up, question.
2: If you look upon this specific share, you can see that there is no hard edges, so it allows for an overflow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <So> <laughs> Answered like a perfect designer. I love it. There's, yeah, overflow. I'm sure that's a technical term. <laughs> So, um, so, so, here we go. There's only, I was hoping for, um, I'm guessing if you've got a cardboard engineer, you've also got a, you know, uh, a, a manual
2: engineer, someone who's... But like, do you want to do this uh, IKEA employee style or do you want to do it as a customer? <laughs> as
3: a customer, you throw it away, right? You go, I can do this, don't you? <laughs> no, no, someone, no, seriously. Like. <laughs> If it's someone's job to design the cardboard, it's someone's job to design this, do you have a name for this guy, by the way? Does he have a name?
2: No, I have to ask, do we have a name for him, huh? Yes. The assembly guy, of course. Yeah? yeah? So the, the little
3: In the IKEA instruction manual, there's a little cartoon person who's, who's putting it together and then, I don't know where the old <coughs> key is, and he gets on the phone, he doesn't know what's going on. Wait up, Marcus, what are you doing? Wait, 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 slow down, I want you to talk me through it, buddy. He doesn't care, he gets bored he's... easily, apparently. So, why only three pieces, mate? So, ready. Bam! <laughs> Holy moly! Why only, why only three pieces? Why? Yeah.
2: To make it simple for our customers, actually. Yeah? One of the things that we could see before, when we started out, that you, you could see in all of our products, there was a lot of fittings into each and every product. And uh, we thought that, that was smart at the time. It was not that smart actually. Because the cost of fittings is actually higher than the cost of the product itself. So thirty percent of the cost of, of a product is fittings. So if you could get rid of fittings, you could make it cheaper.
3: You mean the little the little the bits sm- of metal uh, that go
2: in? Metal stuff and so on, which you have to assemble it from.
3: Yeah, but when I build like here with a cordless drill, I feel like a god. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> fit, fit,
2: fit, bed. You know? maybe, maybe it says more about you than IKEA. I don't yeah, know. Yeah,
3: probably. <laughs> I'll, make sure my, I'll make sure my wife's watching when I do it. Um, okay, okay. So, this is, so there's no Allen keys in this at all. We've only got there's, there's
2: four pieces to this entire chair. Yes, it is. And
3: how, how, did you, how did you get to that?
2: How that did was you actually a lot of engineering to get yeah, to that point tell because me it about was really, it. really hard. Also to get it sturdy enough and and how to do the mold in a way so, you know, because there's always small things in the mold that would be in the way for for that kind of fit, perfect fit that's needed to do this.
3: How how many prototypes do you go through before you get to this point?
2: This one was really slow. I think we did a lot of prototypes actually before achieving this. And uh, doing prototypes in plastics is also quite expensive. Yeah. Compared to other products. Is
3: it, like, is it like Westworld? You just throw them in the mincer and start again?
2: <laughs> nope.
3: No? <Okay>. <laughs> no. <laughs> but like, like, if there's one thing I do love about design, it's that the, the simplest things often have the most amount of thinking. It is. That goes behind no. it. So here I am, I'm standing with a chair that's only got four pieces. How many people worked on this?
2: I think it was at least two designers involved and uh, then it was our own engineers. I would say like maybe three of our own engineers. And yeah. on top of that is the factory that did the first samples and there's special engineers in that factory as well. So there's a lot of people and that's just for the construction of the share. Then on top of that is the packaging technicians, is the communicators, is the one who's doing the supply uh, demand planning and so on. So it's like a big team. It's extraordinary, and this little, the, even the twist in this. Okay, so I've got it. And few the idea buttons. here was be to do this completely without tools, also. So you're not needed to have not even an Allen key.
3: Right, because there's I know there's certainly some people who have they, they don't have full use of their fingers, so they can't mm-hmm. they can't create create this. So, so hang on, this goes in like this. It fits in there. Oh my God, I'm about to build a chair. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to fuck it up in front of you too. Oh no. <laughs> okay, no, that's the other differs. way around. Oh, other fuck. way around. And which way?
2: I have to start there. Yeah. And then, sorry, push it towards there.
3: Yeah. Okay. And then push it down. And then push this down. Yeah. All right.
2: Oh, like that. Okay, hang Was on. Was that Rachel or? And then <laughs> like
3: this and then just twist it in. So I just twist that in like that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Here I go.
2: You All hear right. that perfect click.
3: Oh, is, that a, is that a
2: thing as well? Yeah, then you know that it's safe.
3: Yeah? Yeah. So when when you hear the click, that's it. Mm, safe yeah. to go. Hang on. Here we go. Oh. Shh, here it comes. There it is. All right. Hang on. See? I am a carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> that's have a great. Seat. Let's have a seat.
2: Look at this. And what's good about this is also that it's quite easy to disassemble because that's one of the things that we have learned lately is that people are actually moving more and more all over the world so if you put our things together you want to disassemble them again because then it's easier to move.
3: Uh, yeah, and certainly in, in in Sydney we have. I don't know if you have it in Sweden as well. We have a day where, uh, like twice a year, everyone can just put the stuff out on the street, and the council comes by. There's a bit of IKEA out there.
2: It is, yeah. Yeah. Does that make you sad when you see IKEA on the side of the street? Not if people would grab it and reuse it somewhere. But <laughs> oh, you've been to haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> but if they throw it away, it would make me sad, of course.
3: Right. Mm. Tell tell me about like this chair. I mean, I've always been I've been fascinated by by this, when I first knew that I was doing this, I really wanted to talk to you about the design of a chair because, I, you know, I, clearly I think about this stuff a lot, probably a little, a little too much. But, you know, when I sit around and I'm trying to, you know, have bonding time with my family, when Rachel finds me an hour and a half, two hours to sit down with them... Um, I want to make sure that, you know, we have a good conversation. You can't yeah. have a good conversation around a dinner table if you don't have a good dining chair, can you?
2: That's true.
3: And this is stuff that you, you, you think of. Is this part of the conception phase?
2: No, actually, for for. People. To, to allow people to socialize is part of what we want to achieve when we do shares, for instance, as you say. So that's part of the brief, actually. It should be something that you can sit on for a long time. Sometimes you want to do a share that you shouldn't actually sit on for a long time because it's not so good either. The best ergonomics is to, you know, stand up for a while, and sit down, and then stand up again, and so on. That's the best thing for your body. Right. But if you have to sit for a long time, it should, of course, be comfy.
3: It's extraordinary that, you know, you are as a as head of design of IKEA that you're able to influence the lives of just billions of people around the world every day. Do yeah. you think about that at night?
2: No, I don't think about it at all, actually. <laughs> it might be hard to sleep. It's, <laughs> it's hard enough with the jet lag and then having that on top. <laughs> that would be like not good for your body. <laughs> well, mate, it's, it's a, a super
3: comfy chair. You should try it. Come on, have mm. a seat. It's better than that stool. I've got like four of these stools at home, by the way. Come
2: have a seat. What do you but actually, the, the comfort comes here from both the seat curve, which is the thing that all nerdy designers talk about, but it's also the thing that, you, you know, how flexible the seat is. Yeah. And if you look to on old chairs from on a Jacobson, for instance, in, in layer glued, it's all about the flex, it's not just about the curve. Because that's also adapting to different body sizes and different body weights. So that chair could work for a lot of different people. I
3: love it. What do you reckon? Is it good? Very it is, isn't it? I built that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an amazing carpenter. Thank you so, thank you so much, um, Marcus. I really, I really could talk to you all, all night. I've got, I've got 10 minutes. Do you, have, you want to take some questions? Yeah, why not? You, can you do that? Yeah. Who's got, a, who's got to go in the back? You haven't got a microphone, so I'm going to repeat what you say. The question was about flat-pack housing and that IKEA do flat-pack housing, and why are we not doing flat-pack housing in Australia? Because
2: affordability is a very big thing. Actually, the flat-pack housing that we do is for uh, refugees. So it's a project that we do together with the United Nations for refugees and it wouldn't work for for every life in a, in normal cities actually but it's a really good flat pack house for refugee camps coming from a tent to that flat pack house is so much better yeah but we are uh, we are doing research uh, on housing and how we could apply our way of thinking that we have for how we do produce furniture and how we design furniture to the housing industry as well because as you say that is one thing which is really annoying the the pricing for for actually you know, living, good living standards. That, that is a, a big opportunity, I would say.
3: Well, at that scale, surely you'd be able to you know, put the wind up the existing construction industry. Yeah,
2: but on the other hand, you should be close to what you're good at. And uh, we are good at doing furniture. That doesn't mean that we're gonna be necessarily good at doing housing, uh, although they're close, closely related.
3: Well, I reckon by 2030, you might have uh, flat-packed an apartment building. No, I
2: reckon,
3: <laughs> I reckon it, won't, it, won't, it won't be too far away. Another and question, you could click it together. As oh, one. I will build it. Do you have, a, do you have, have an often when you uh, have to reject a design that looks great but might be a bit too avant-garde for IKEA?
2: I wouldn't say that we reject designs because they're avant-garde. Uh, I think that we have a lot of things which is avant-garde at IKEA, and that's also the history of IKEA doing things differently. But we are, we have to reject a lot of designs, both internally and externally, which doesn't fulfill all of the five aspects of democratic design. You know, it could have a really great shape and be totally avant-garde, uh, but maybe non-functional or, you know, the choice of materials and so on. I've actually had a lot of designers coming in with, you know, that been influenced by what is happening right now within fashion and, and plexi. You know, there, there's this materials which you see there in the way that they work, but it's not sustainable at all. So we won't like to go into that, no matter if it looks good and if it even could sell in a good way, but it's not smart to do that kind of project. So those are mainly the things that we reject, actually. Could you talk us through the democratic design, the five principles? The five principles of democratic design, you know, every single piece within IKEA uh, should uh, fulfill, uh, it should have a great form you know, looking good, making the world a little bit more of a beautiful place. It should have a function, so you could function for everyday life, because our focus within IKEA is not just for the the few party days, it's for everyday life. Then, uh, quality, so it should also uh, have the choice of materials that could age in a beautiful way and also be long-lasting. Sustainability, which is the fourth pillar. And that's all about making choices, so it's people and planet positive, the things that we do. And also to try actually to, to design stuff that nudge people's behaviors at home. Because if we do sustainable things, that's good, of course, but everybody's doing that. But could you design for changing people's behaviors? When you have the responsibility for one billion people's behaviors, if we could change their behaviors to something which is better for the world, that's a big change for the world. So. That's how we think we design for sustainability as well. And then the fifth, which makes us IKEA, that's what everybody's talking about, our low prices. But our low prices is actually all about accessibility. We want all of those great ideas to be accessible for as many as possible. And low prices is the number one ticket to accessibility for most people.
3: You don't have to nudge behavior towards sustainability. Why do you do it? Uh,
2: Because it's good for everyone. If it's good for everyone, then it's good for us. It's such a simple answer, but I love it.
3: Um, of all the years, of all the beautiful designs, do you have a favourite piece, something that really speaks to you?
2: It's good if you take that choice instead of the worst design of the history. Uh, uh, I have things which has more like, a, I was saying that this morning, also things that I have a personal connection to by history. One of the objects that I still like a lot is the clip-on sofa because i'm closely related to it because it was part of my upbringing since the designer or the product developer is my father for that sofa and he designed it together with a japanese designer who lived it at with it, at our home at the time and me and my sister were the ones trying it out for real because that was the first sofa designed to be for children uh, families with children so my father brought home the samples so we had to play in that sofa and see if it worked out uh, so that's like a close relationship to a product then myself, during those years, I've been working with design here. One of the things I still I'm kind of proud of that we did was one of the first collections we did together with Ilse Crawford, uh, which was uh, actually introducing new materials and new surface treatments techniques and so on to make things more uh, what do you say? Huh? No, uh, to, to, to work with tactility. You know, the, you, often when you when you're look upon design, you, you just look upon the design and say, oh, this is so beautiful. But what about feeling the design? You know, when you touch an object, that's the tactile parts of design. I think that's so important also. Because it, at the end of the day, for me, like great design is something that resonates with you and actually that like, connects a human with an object. That that's, that's, uh, emotional connection is important. And then tactility is extremely important.
3: It, it is tactility is, is I never really
2: thought about it like that, but you're right now. I'm now I'm just kind of gently fingering this table. <laughs> Nobody, why you like wood is because it's it's like warm from the beginning, and and cork is even better, you know.
3: Yeah. Hmm? What excites you when it, when when it, when you said you know future looking? What we talked about this material here, which is uh, recycled plastic and recycled bits of old IKEA. Where do you see it? you know, as you move towards 2030, this big goal you've got of true circularity, what kind of compounds do you think you'll be looking for? What kind of things uh, are you excited about coming our way?
2: I think actually it would be, you know, what's in my mind and I don't know if that's going to be a reality is to maybe to design everything completely different, to have an approach which is more like a component-based approach. So instead of doing products, actually what we designed from the very beginning is like maybe 2,000 components. And then you put them together, a little bit like Lego, and then you put them together in a lot of different products. That could look extremely different. And that could be like the app store of IKEA, actually, is you could let anybody else use our components and be creative about it. That would also be another way of, of uh, working with circularity, because then we could invest in those components so they're long-lasting, and then you could just put them into IKEA again, and then we do some new stuff out of it, instead of you know melting it down or you know, things like you do today. Just keep them as is.
3: And then, as your family grows, yeah, you can you could pull it apart. Precisely. Put it back together as a yeah. chair. Pull mm. it apart, pull it back together. It's a
2: little bit, if you're, if you're you know, curious, you get, have a look upon what we did together with Tom Dixon for the dialectic sofa system and so on. That's an excursion into that kind of thinking, actually, to, to repurpose pieces of your home, to so design for repurposing.
3: I, I could really, really talk to you all night, but we probably are going to have to get out of here. Marcus, I'm so grateful, even though you are behind the wall of jet lag, that you spent so much time talking to us tonight. You're an absolute gentleman. Thank you very much. Ladies Thank and you. gentlemen, Marcus Engman.
1: That was Marcus Engman head of design at Ikea of Sweden. What a brilliant, brilliant night we had. You don't really get many chances in life to build a piece of Ikea furniture with the head of design at Ikea. It was pretty, pretty good. A big, big, big thank you to my producer, Rachel Barrett, and the team at Ikea for working so hard to make that happen. Marcus is a big, big, player he is a heavy hitter and it was extraordinary that we managed to get that happening and pull that podcast off and pull off a live one no less so big thank you rachel you're amazing i love you um big thank you to the uh, the museum of contemporary art uh, of australia that was wonderful to have have all your support for making that andy ma my extraordinary audio producer thank you very much toe hider for all of the music Without you, I am nothing, Mike. Without you, I am nothing. And thank you to everyone that listens. You, right now. You're amazing. If I don't have an audience, I can't make a show. So, (laughs) thank you so, so much. If you'd like to uh, check out more episodes, go right ahead. It really helps me. If you do two things. One, if you subscribe to the show, that really helps. And two, if you just tell a mate, share it with a friend. The other day, I saw someone put a podcast app on their phone for the very first time. And that's always an exciting moment because, oh boy. You'll never really listen to radio again, do you? Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you need me through the week, you know how to find me. If you need the book, you can get it at osherginzberg.com. I'll see you in Rockhampton on the 5th of October. Until then, until next Monday, sleep well, dream of beautiful
0: things. Hold up.